0: Hello and welcome to the Damn Interesting Week podcast. We have a great list of articles for you today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: And I'm Whisper Chen.
0: And this was a Damn Interesting Week. <music> so let's get started with our first link. First, first link. link. Uh, who misses high heels? Mm. Hmm no.
1: I <laughs> I'm going to default to no. Right.
0: Just assume the answer is no.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: I mean, I, I would hope that would be the answer. I, you know, sometimes I miss them because I like the look of it. I like, you know, styling them, but in terms of actually being able to wear them, my endurance for that is low and the older I get, it gets even lower. And this article from JSTOR Daily by Matthew Wills, it's called Doctors Have Always Been Against High Heeled Shoes. So maybe if if, you know, we make our case, you know, we can do away with mandatory high heels, especially in certain offices in certain countries that are still holding on to this weird patriarchal gender conforming.
0: Because- yeah, I was going to say, you don't get a lot of that in Austin where there's so many hippies yeah. here. But like, mm-hmm, I yeah. know there are some cities where it's still considered like you have to dress up for work.
2: Oh, yeah. And then some industries where if you don't, the kind of social pressure or, you know, the glass ceiling becomes a little thicker. If you don't like in the finance industry, Mm -hmm. um, I know that that's particularly a kind of thing. I used to call it my conservative cosplay because I would wear heels and (laughs) sheet dresses. And anyway, they're terrible for your body.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But you're saying this is not a new revelation like they've known that for a long time?
2: They've known it for hundreds and hundreds Ugh, of
0: years. So jerks. I mean,
2: basically, the the first people who were wearing a lot of high heels were the aristocracy, of course. Louis the Fourteenth really kind of popularized it in part because he was only five foot two, and so he could make himself eight inches taller by Whoa. having a super tall wig and high heels. So they weren't necessarily eight <laughs> was, inch heels. Eight <laughs> inch heels would be pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely seen some people wear eight inch heels, and it is very impressive. That is not an easy feat. But after the French Revolution occurred, heels kind of went away. And then they came back, mostly in the United States, in the second half of the 19th century. And it wasn't just upper class women this time. It was kind of a little bit of everything but for women. And from an anatomical perspective, high heels are terrible. A Dutch anatomist and physician, Jacob Benigus Winslow, he was, I think, alive in 1669, 1760 and was one of the first people to be like, hey, these are really, really bad for your body. Basically, it induces curvature of the spine, especially if you're young.
0: So when you say young, are you talking like, you know, 17, 18? or Are you talking like eight and nine-year-olds damaging their spines wearing heels? I
2: mean, this article is relatively brief. Part of what captured my interest is that I have a masseuse that I miss dearly during this lockdown, (laughs) especially. And the first time she ever worked on me, she said, oh, you work at a computer all day. I said, oh, that's pretty good. And then she said, you have two monitors and your primary monitor is your right monitor. And that's when I was like, <laughs> whoa. She's got
0: she's got cameras in your house. She's all just. <laughs> <laughs> well, she could
2: tell based on the way that my body had been locking up and overcompensating due mm-hmm. to a very kind of unnatural stature. And so when she started getting to know me and my body a little bit better, she was like, you got to stop wearing these higher heels. She's like, you can do a platform that has a lower heel that still gives you that height because I'm also five 5'2".
0: I really like having that height boost when the occasion calls for it. Well, you got to just but... do it with a wig like Louie did. Get one of those like <laughs> six inches wigs and then you're doing fine.
2: You know, that's not a terrible idea. <laughs> I would like to see that come back in fashion, especially if there was some storage inside of these wigs so Ooh. that we could do away from like purses and it would compensate from lack of pockets on women's
0: clothing. That's true. I'm on board. I'm with it. I'll I'll, I'll back that Kickstarter anytime. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
2: But as far as like how young is too young, um, since a lot of these are historical documents, I'm sure that Them saying too young is probably in the super super young, (laughs) right? What would be considered childlike?
0: Because like you picture like spike heels on an eight year old, everyone be like, oh no, that's weird. But they have kids' shoes that are big wedges, like really big wedges.
2: They absolutely are. So I would look up what doctors have to say about (laughs) high heels for all ages, because the information is going to be pretty consistent.
1: Does the article mention like a, a safe amount? Of high heel usage, kind of like if you smoke once every two months, <laughs> you're probably okay.
2: Right, right, right. The way that Gwyneth Paltrow has her one weekly sanctioned American Spirit cigarette, according to <laughs> celeb gossip <laughs> i read. You know, the article doesn't mention it, but my masseuse has mentioned if you want to wear heels higher than three inches, you can do it as long as you're on your back. <laughs> <laughs> That's the official medical prognosis from exactly one LMT. I guess three
0: three inches is still pretty big. Even my heels, I think I I top out at about two inches, but maybe that's just because I'm tired and old and don't want to bother with it. I I will tower over all of you. (laughs) (laughs) I look forward to your wig business. (laughs) (laughs) Stash wig coming soon. (laughs) That's a great name,
2: stash wig. Right? (laughs) Next link.
1: Next Next link. link. Uh, Have you all seen the 2013 hit sci-fi movie, Gravity?
0: Yes, I get it confused Mm. with a lot of the other sci-fi movies, but I think I know which one it is. This
2: is the Matthew McConaughey multiverse thing, right?
1: No, this is the one. Oh, Sandra Bullock is Lost in Space. Sandra Bullock, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so there's this iconic scene where a piece of space junk rams through the station, and then everything spins like crazy because of the massive velocity out there. So that's what this article from The Conversation is talking about, which is not so much about uh, Sandra Bullock in space, although they do talk (laughs) about that, and even include the the gravity clip. But astronomers are currently worried as all these private companies are actually pushing ahead with satellite launches. So since the launch of Sputnik 1 in 1957, the Mm -hmm. space in the lower orbit around Earth has become increasingly congested with over 2,200 satellite launches to date. Wow. Yeah, so there's now like a fog of space debris with those satellites as well as launch vehicle components and debris from various instances of mechanical disintegration, collisions, and explosions. And it keeps getting busier. So in the last few weeks, SpaceX actually launched 60 new satellites as part of its Starlink program. Uh,
2: Good, because that's what they need to be doing is ejecting more stuff. I'm sorry. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That didn't need to occur. Do they have names? Are these satellites cleverly named with unpronounceable types of monikers?
1: (laughs) I mean, probably. You know, if Musk ever has another kid, then it'll probably have a version number. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so SpaceX has been launching these just 60 new satellites, but it actually brings the total that they have to around 400 Starlink satellites. And it's meant to be part of a program that hopes to bring cheap satellite-based internet access to everyone for free, Mm -hmm. uh, which could eventually replace about 12,000 satellites that are in orbit around the Earth right now.
0: Right, assuming that the other companies take them down, but they're not going to. They'll just repurpose them or be competitive. They're not going to say, oh, okay, you've got this? Sure, we'll back out. you win. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it's actually becoming more crowded with more satellite constellations planned by Amazon, Telesat in Uh... Canada, and a bunch of others. So the debris that's out there can range in size from just a few microns to a bunch of meters. And actually, in this article, there's a phenomenal time lapse rendering of the Earth that shows the number of satellites that appear from 1957 to the present time. And you just watch this thing. And at first, it's like, oh, there's Sputnik. And then all of a sudden, there's just this explosion of white dots around the Earth. Mm -hmm. And then you have to zoom out even farther so it can fit in more of those dots. And it's just like this cloud there. So the time lapse represents about over 20,000 objects over 10 centimeters, but there are also many millions of particles one millimeter in size and smaller. So this actually causes a really big concern for astronomers because the bright surfaces on satellites can actually reflect rays from the sun which cause these intense bursts of light to get directed towards the surface of the Earth and into telescopes. And because of the reflective effect, they're much stronger than the weak light sources that astronomers usually see from stars and planets. And they can actually impede observation of distant objects in space.
0: Oh, interesting. Uh, Because I've always heard about space junk as like it interferes with other items up there. But I didn't even Mm -hmm. think about it's reflecting back and it's a cloud that we're trying to see through. It makes it a problem to actually study the stars beyond it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, like, billions of dollars have already been spent on existing optical telescopes, and many more billions are going to be poured into new platforms in the next decade. Like, there's the uh, European Extremely Large Telescope, or EELT, <laughs> I guess. Uh, <laughs> Wait, that's which the is-
2: official name, is Extremely y- Large?
1: Yep, extreme European <laughs> Extremely Large Telescope. And that's being built on the Atacama Plateau in Chile. And then uh, there's also intense competition for observation time on the re- resources because they're so huge and powerful. So any threats from satellite reflections really need to be taken seriously because mm-hmm. they can completely impede us from making observations that would help us understand the evolution of the universe.
2: Yeah, but... How important is that compared to getting entertainment for cheap? I
0: mean, surveillance
2: <laughs> over everyone. Yeah, let's that's have, essentially let's have priorities. what this is going to be.
1: Ugh. Yeah, that's true. And Musk and SpaceX are assuring the public that Starlink won't contribute to the problem, and they're taking steps to mitigate the impact of its satellites, and they're even testing whether or not they can use a black coating on its satellites that will reduce the visibility, and adjusting some of the orbits of the satellites. So, the flip side is that space. SpaceX's current 400 satellites are only about 3% of its planned constellation. But unlike a lot of other companies, they are responding to the concerns of astronomers.
0: Well, at least they're doing something. Are they? So when you say black paint, are you talking. This isn't like standard black paint. This is like that cool Vanta Black stuff. You guys heard of that? It's like yeah. blacker than black. It somehow like it absorbs light yeah. to the point but where it just Isn't
2: the patent for that owned by an artist who has famously not licensing it out to anybody because he mm. claims total ownership over it? It could yeah, be. That is
1: Vanta Black, but now there's a bunch of other competing blacks that oh, do essentially enough. the same job. Yeah. Okay. And I think they have even blacker blacks than Vanta Black nowadays. Oh it's but... so passe. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, this crowding in actually does also have consequences for satellites and the other space vehicles, including those that carry humans. To stay aloft, satellites have to maintain a certain speed based on its altitude above Earth. And the closer it is to Earth, the faster they have to move. Mm -hmm. So at an altitude of 124 miles, the required orbital velocity is a little bit over 17,000 miles per hour. So if you have two objects moving in opposite directions, they can essentially collide at combined speeds of up to 34,000 miles per hour.
0: That'll do some damage.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Satellites and space vehicles do have impact shielding that can stop objects smaller than about one centimeter, which crash into them. But even those small objects can still cause mini EMPs or electromagnetic pulses Mm. that can interfere with electronic systems. And so to deal with this issue, space agencies like NASA and ESA have been establishing what they call orbital debris research programs to observe patterns of the debris and try and develop strategies to control its effects.
0: Is there any effort to clean it up? Or is it one of those like, nope, there's nothing we can do. We just got to get better at avoiding them.
1: Yeah. So the only one thing that was mentioned, there is a removed debris satellite that actually uses an onboard harpoon to capture junk. <laughs>
2: Nice. Yeah, and thus bes- the space pirates were born.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. Besides that, though, it seems like this is still very much a unsolved and evolving problem.
2: Hmm. Well, and especially since so much of the debris is due to private companies, that's where we get into an issue of who's gonna regulate it, who's gonna enforce that.
1: I feel like this is part of why in a lot of sci-fi you find out that the Earth now has an entire federation, probably to deal with weird issues like this.
0: (laughs) Right. You get to a point where it's like you can't have territorial anything because it's above all of us at different times. You know, you can't say, Well, that's America's satellites. Like, well now it's over China, so it's China's problem. You know, you're gonna have to have some sort of unity in dealing with this eventually or don't just stop going into space and just
2: let it all be up there (laughs) yeah we'll just kind of encounter these global crises that require coalitions of united efforts and we'll see how many of them we have to actually go through until it actually takes and a federation can be formed because uh
0: i don't know if we're really in that point hey star trek said it will happen and i believe them
2: I do too. I just hope <laughs> you it's don't in my sound lifetime. like you do. <laughs> well, I, I'm skeptical that it'll be anytime soon. Right? How's that?
0: That's that's understandable. <laughs> Next link.
2: Next, Next link. link.
0: So we all have been using Uber Eats and uh, Grubhub, all of various apps delivering food to us recently. But the food delivery apps are having a specifically hard time getting into India. This article from the BBC is talking about how there is an existing network of food delivery people. They have been running for 125 years. And Whoa, they're wow. an incredibly well-run system. They're basically considered one of the world's most efficient logistics systems. Oh, huh. wow. They're called Dabawalas, which means literally one who carries the box. The box is a Daba. And they're hmm. just a 5,000-member cooperative where they deliver home-cooked meals from your house to your place of business. That's sort of their specialty. They really don't do restaurants. They don't necessarily deliver a home-cooked meal from your house. There's sort of a separate network of you could get someone else to make you a home-cooked meal. But fundamentally, they're going from the residential areas on the trains into Mumbai, where most of their customers are. And they've actually been studied by a lot of people because they run so well. Harvard Business School rated the Dabawala network as Six Sigma, which means fewer than 3.4 mistakes per 1 million transactions. Wow. And mistakes in this case means not just missing or screwed up orders, but delayed orders. If your order is five minutes late, that's considered a problem. And the Dabawalas have like this huge, huge pride in the timeliness and the efficiency of their system. And every time some shiny app or some company tries to come in and replicate it, they find that they just can't. They deliver hot lunches to 200,000 workers every day, and the service costs the equivalent of roughly $10 a month. What? Yeah, and that's not the food, because of course the food is coming from your house, but for $10 a month, you can have somebody deliver a meal to you every day of the week. Oh. The job commands respect. Like people know their neighborhood Dabawala, they have a relationship traffic and police give way. If a Dabawala is coming through, you know them because they're carrying their giant shoulder packs of all these lunch boxes. Everybody kind of waves them ahead like you would with an ambulance. Mm. And it goes both ways. Being late for the Dabawala is practically a sin. But if the customer's meal isn't ready for pickup when the Dabawala arrives for maybe two or three times, the customer gets booted. They say, you're not you're oh. not participating in this communal system the way that you're supposed to be. And you're affecting everybody. And they have a very communal understanding. Wow. Most of the people who work as Dabawalas come from a particular sector of Hinduism that worships Vithala. And Vithala's thing is he teaches that giving food to the hungry is a great virtue. And so one of the Dabawalas was interviewed. He was quoted as saying, we are getting a golden chance to walk the path of spirituality while earning our bread. Wow, it's an amazing system. They've been studied, of course, to see how do they do it? How do they keep it organized? You know, right, because mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. so many meals and so many people. They say one Dabawala runs about maybe 20 or 30 pickup spots in their assigned neighborhood. And then it all goes to a central location. They've got a really complex coding system that says what train it needs to go on, what neighborhood in Mumbai and which office building in which floor. They say the Dabawalas earn a little over one hundred and forty dollars a month. Which is not great, but for unskilled labor in India that only has to work half the day, that's actually really good. They, uh, mm-hmm. they do well. Yeah. And now that companies are starting to come in and sort of examine how they work, some of them are supplementing in the afternoons with deliveries from like FedEx and other types of companies, as long as it doesn't interfere with their food delivery, which they consider sort of a moral duty. They're not ever going to give that up. Mm-hmm. One of the other things they noted was that their management is strictly 2 tier. They have the workers and they have one layer of supervisors and the supervisors are democratically elected from the teams that they supervise. So that
2: makes a great deal of sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just
0: this really loving community that really they sort of feel like they said, like a religious duty to their job and the people respect them. And they're more than just, you know, a quick app with clicking the money. Mm -hmm. And like that's one of the other things that one of the advantages they have is even though Google Maps now has all of these neighborhoods in India fully mapped. They're really not great about understanding where the traffic bottlenecks are. And, of course, the Dabawalas know that, you know, Mm -hmm. inside and out. So anytime someone tries to bring in technology, they're like, we don't need that. We know it already. We are good at our jobs. Leave us alone. So. Yeah, that
1: reminds me of sort of when Uber was coming around in the UK. The UK has this elaborate system for taxi drivers who have to know the entire city mm. intimately. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. has this insane test, which makes the requirements in the bar to get in much higher. But at least for something like this... You know, people are very touchy about their food with good reason. Right, right. So it's not like you can just come in with a slightly below par service and then everybody will just accept it.
0: Right. Once you've established this baseline expectation of people, you're not going to be able to try and disrupt the environment because people are generally happy with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: What a dream that sounds like. I would love to learn more about importing that model, but I guess you have to also have buy off on like built in Social goods, social pact operations in order to
0: (laughs) make it happen. And And that's one of the things (sighs) that people like there was a guy quoted the article who did his Ph.D. on the Dabawala network, like just as examining them as a business. And one of the things they note is the same reasons that the apps are having a hard time getting into India. This system would be very hard to implement anywhere else because you don't have that cultural buy in. First of all, you don't have a culture Mm -hmm. that says, yes, of course, my, you know, working person is getting a home cooked meal. You don't have people sitting at home going, yeah, my job is to cook all day for these people. So, Mm. you know, that's a sacrifice that you have to trade off to have a system like this where you're delivering home cooked meals to people. But at the Mm. same time, you have a a personal relationship with somebody. These apps don't prioritize personal relationships. It would be impossible Mm -hmm. to have a personal relationship with your Uber Eats driver. Yeah,
2: it's designed to be disposable and a la carte. Right. I wonder if a system like that would become a little bit more appealing, especially as people are really not going out to eat or getting delivery, but the delivery experience is kind of hit or miss right now. Like if you could Mm -hmm. have reliable delivery of Fully prepared meals with a menu that you're used to that you know that you're going to like and that you can really I I see there's potential of it kind of happening here, even if it were more of a grassroots kind of thing.
1: I think there's opportunities also for improvements on the side of the service workers who are delivering and who are picking up and Mm -hmm. and whatnot. My recent experiences with DoorDash specifically have been not super great. Right. Uh, And other just delivery drivers in general will try and get into my apartment complex and give up. Essentially, oh. if they don't oh, they just get walk into away? the gate right away, sometimes that'll happen, yeah. Oh. And I can only personally assume that that is due to untenable scaling problems and mm-hmm. stressors that are on these drivers from yeah. all the demand that is not localized and it just goes everywhere. So yeah. I think a local network and something that has those sort of relationships and redundancy built in makes a ton of sense as a business model overall. But yeah. as we know... Uber Eats and DoorDash are not seeking sustainability, so. Right, no,
0: right. No. They're they're hot and getting the money and getting out. <laughs> yep, <Yeah. laughs> yep, yep. Next link? Next, Next link. link. Well, I'm going to go to
2: a literal fluff piece here from Disclosed TV. This one's called Long Lost Ultra Rare Blue Bee, Discovered in Florida. Bee as, like, bumblebee? That's right. Okay, And, and I wish I could, I'll do my best to describe this to you. It's worth checking out the link. But it's basically not a fat bumblebee, but like a regular bee, but it's furred. And it's got kind of like a furry black butt, furry black uh, <laughs> little leggy things. I don't know bee anatomy, so forgive me. I'm sure. I'm sure. One I, I-, I think legs is correct. I think that. leggy is, things. Right? Um, and then, and then, kind of from the waist up and covering its head, it's got literal Cookie Monster colored blue fur on. Wow. It. It's adorable, you guys.
0: That sounds fantastic.
2: <laughs> it's. I know. And and yay Florida! Like something we can actually applaud Florida for. Um, now, it's okay, called but
0: a Cal- if it's out of Florida, <laughs> are they sure it's not? like a chemical like are they certain this is a native bee <laughs> <laughs> it, maybe it took too much meth like i would question <laughs> <laughs> i mean
2: the color does match what i'm familiar with seeing on breaking bad however <laughs> accurate that is i've never actually seen meth but it is called the calamintha bee it is a native to florida and it was thought to be lost over many many years it basically it's got a habit of bobbing its head back and forth when it's pollinating to kind of spread the pollen so it's this unique motion that caught the attention of researchers when they were looking for it. And basically, the plant on which the bee depends on for survival, which is called the Calamintha ashai, is also endangered, which is why they thought this bee was just kind of long gone. But basically, on March 9th, Dr. Chase Kimmel, he's a postdoctoral associate at the University of Florida. He and a volunteer went out looking for bees. They were setting traps. They saw the bee bobbing. There's no video of this, but I like to think of a bee like bobbing its head like it's listening to headphones and just kind of jamming while it's eating some pollen. Yeah, or whatever.
1: rocking out. Yeah, I'm kind of imagining like a raver bee right now. <laughs>
2: exactly, because it's like Cookie Monster Blue, you guys. It's a plur bee. I'm sure of it. Um, <laughs> but basically, the blue bee has only been recorded over history in four locations, and they all total 16 square miles within Central Florida's Lake Wales Ridge. So I mean this is a hyper specialized bee on a hyper specialized flower in a tiny part in Florida. So now they're looking to kind of keep an eye on it, try to get the flowers back into population so they can continue to thrive.
0: So it's not the kind of thing where like flamingos are only pink because they eat pink shrimp. Does the flower make the bee blue or is it just blue on its own?
2: You know, the article doesn't really get into it. I'm sure that would be googleable if I were to spend some time Googling the on the podcast, but I won't. If <laughs> it were
0: true, they probably would have mentioned it. Like dyeing your bee sure. based on the nectar of the... Yeah, I bet the nectar's not blue. <laughs> I don't
2: even know if the flower's blue. I don't it know may why blue. It There is. may be some kind of chemical composition in the specific flowers or maybe it's environmental but it's worth a look-see because I've always thought that the fuzzy butt bumblebees that are bigger and more adorable I always those are my favorites
0: but this may have taken the top spot now yeah you don't get a lot of blue animals I'm trying to think of I mean cookie monster obviously he counts clearly but
2: (laughs) (laughs) well blue birds That's true. You got blue jays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay,
0: All right. I just wasn't being very. They're represented
2: in the avian world, I think. (laughs) And it may have to do
0: with ultraviolet recognition. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But. Well, if we shine the UV light on them, that will just further instigate the raver image that they're trying to cultivate. (gasps)
1: Yeah. (laughs) If
0: they
2: turn their blue bee conservatory into like an outdoor wetland rave
0: environment, (laughs) I feel like they could get enough fun to keep it going. Yeah. And the bees would flock to it because we know they love it. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link.
1: link. This next article comes from uh, JSTOR Daily as well, and it's called Beating the Bounds, and it is about the question, how did people know where their local boundaries were, like of their city or village or state or what have you, before there were reliable maps and a cartography practice? I imagine it was like Uh,
0: weapons-based, like, this is my land (laughs) because I say it is. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: But I mean, even beyond that, besides claiming the land, there's okay, now it's been 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, Where did I claim that land again? Exactly. So they're talking about England, specifically the parishes of England before they were definitively mapped, people would learn the boundaries of their communities on foot. So every year, a few days before the Feast of the Ascension, the members of each parish would come together to walk the edge of their common lands. And this was called Beating the Bounds. And the idea was to create sort of a shared mental map of the parish to make sure that neighboring communities knew, you know, who belongs where. And so they would carry flags, sing songs, (laughs) read homilies, and use uh, slender willow branches to swat the landmarks that separated one parish from another.
0: So
1: lines and, in the sand, literally. Yeah, literally lines of the sand, the dirt <laughs> and they could have, have like you.
0: put up a fence or like as they're literally walking it, they could put something more permanent up. But they said, no, no, we'll just walk it again next year.
1: Yeah, apparently <laughs> so. Uh, it was a very oral tradition, mm-hmm. and it was actually the responsibility of the older members of the community to remember the boundaries and the responsibility of the younger ones to learn them so that they could be passed on from generation to generation. Right,
2: and there's going to be no warping of that language over time, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, not, not at all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it is interesting, though. They talk about how pain was actually used as an aid to memory, and the form of that pain <laughs> was determined by the landscape. So this is a little cruel, but if they came to a stream, the children's heads might be dunked in it, Uh, If the boundary ran against a wall, they might be encouraged to race along it so that they could fall into the brambles on either side. (laughs) If they came across a ditch, they might be encouraged to jump across it so that they would slip in the mud. And when they came to a boundary stone, the children would be flipped upside down to have their heads knocked against
0: it. Oh, my God. Oh so, my yeah. They're trying to create traumatic memories because they're like, you're going to remember where I beat the crap out of you that one time, and then you'll know <laughs> where our land ends. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly. certainly more effective than an oral tradition, however cruel.
1: <laughs> yeah. I like and I like how so you're thinking,
0: it, Angie. You're like, no, this is a good system. <laughs> no, no, no,
2: no. It's effective. I'm not going to say it's good, but I'm sure that, you know, it be it sure more it effective than yeah. just... Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: In some spots, they would make more pleasant memories by pausing for a glass of beer or a snack of bread and cheese, and they would finish the whole ordeal with a party on the village green uh, while all the children, I guess, are, are bruised and just <laughs> crying. Uh, but actually, the practical reason that we've referred to for the tradition is to create a living record of the parish's boundaries, which serve as evidence in disputes. So in one case, there was a 75-year-old man who testified that... That he knew exactly where the eastern boundary of his parish lay because he had been thrown into a heap of nettles there 60 years ago (gasps) when he was a boy. If he just asserted that he remembered the boundary, that would not have stood up in court. It was the vivid, visceral nature of the memory (laughs) and its connection to a dramatic experience that helped his parish win the case.
0: Wow. I mean, like I said, effective. Right. I I don't (laughs) think you can deny it. It held up in court.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh. So the beating of the bounds was also a way to bless the crops and draw people of the parish together. The poet and priest George Herbert wrote that the beating of the bounds was a time for reconciling of differences and that anyone who stayed home would actually be reproved as uncharitable (laughs) and unneighborly. So the parish essentially came into being as its inhabitants walked it, both as a geographical space, but also as a community. But in the 16th century, these common lands started to be enclosed and appropriated by our favorite people, uh, the landowners. Ah, yes. And Mm. John Taylor actually wrote bitingly about how landowners would enrich themselves at the expense of their neighbors. No. And (laughs) landowners would employ professional surveyors to assess the value of each acre, which quickly led to hikes in the rent overall and make maps of the properties. So rather than a space to be moved through, the land was kind of turned into an object that could be viewed at a distance and treated like a trophy. Hmm. The common lands that the people had once had as part of their shared landscape were fenced off and surrounded with hedges, and the practice of beating the bounds was slowly suffocated. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there were uh, other more dramatic consequences than just destroying a tradition. The common lands would support people in many ways. They're used for grazing, hunting, digging sod. Mm -hmm. And it really cut into the ability of average commoners to support their families and was part of what forced them to uproot themselves and move into cities, becoming industrial laborers and contributing to part of the industrial revolution.
0: Right, because part of that community is lost if you don't actually get to benefit from the land anymore, whether or not you know where it is, you know it isn't yours.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And other people protested subtly just by insisting on continuing to use the land like they always did. They just push or pass through hedges or pull them down and lead their cattle onto the green. But there are also some more demonstrative protests like leaders of anti-enclosure riots would take up the mantle of Lady Skimmington. Which was a cross-dressing character that was used to publicly shame people who committed antisocial acts.
2: Wait, I'm sorry. Did you say cross-dresser? So basically, like shaming drag queens?
1: I think it was the drag queen that was doing the shaming of people who were trying to set up fences. That's very
0: British. That feels right. I think.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, I could see that happening
2: today too. Like if we had some of the winners from RuPaul's Drag Race dragging people for their antisocial behavior. I would pay attention to that. Yeah, I think it would be effective. (laughs) Better than a beating.
1: (laughs) It's an interesting like through line of of pro social drag culture, which is interesting. Like (laughs) in her petticoats, she would lead rioters to tear down the enclosure hedges and reclaim the common lands. That was this character's entire deal. Well, and if you're
0: so into this. If you're tearing down a hedge, that's just one more way to like hurt the kids while you're doing it. So like kids get in there on the rocks and tear it all apart. (laughs) That
1: just they're just
0: feeding into the tradition. They don't know it. That's right.
2: You will remember.
1: (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link.
0: So this is a really fascinating article to me because for the first half of the article, I didn't understand what it was saying at all. And I had to go back and start again once I realized. (laughs) So (laughs) it's called Aircraft Spies Gravity Waves Being Sucked Into Antarctica's Polar Vortex. Hmm. And the thing that had me lost here is gravity waves. I was confusing with gravitational waves which are a a thing that happens in space where it's actual fluctuations in gravity. And I was trying to figure out how this could possibly be happening on Earth. Like, that doesn't sound like the Mm -hmm. kind of thing that you have just floating up in the air. And you don't. Uh, They're called gravity waves because what they actually are is a particular type of air turbulence that is affected by gravity. And that in itself is very cool to think of air being affected by gravity, which, of course, it is. Otherwise, we wouldn't have an atmosphere at all. But so the idea is that fast-moving air in the upper atmosphere passes over the top of a mountain range and basically jets upward, kind of like a jump skier. You know, you get that, it's heading straight mm-hmm. at it, and then it shoots up. But then that mm-hmm. mass of air is pulled back down by gravity, and it sort of overshoots and then bobs back up, and it creates these waves coming off the far side of the mountains. And it's an observable phenomenon, but it's also one that is very chaotic, and it's been very, very hard for meteorologists to quantify and predict in their models. And this mm-hmm. matters for climate models because, for example, there is a problem called the cold pole problem that consistently predicts colder temperatures at the South Pole than we actually measure and see. And they've sort of suspected for a long time we think gravity waves are the reason that the South Pole is just inherently warmer than we think it ought to be because our models are not able to calculate these incredibly complex wave calculations. Mm. So what has happened and what is actually what this article is about is that an airplane has now been sort of specially fitted to go out into the air and measure the gravity waves that are happening above and below it. So this was created by Germany's Institute for Atmospheric Physics, and they call the plane the South Track, and it costs five million euros. It's basically equipped with an infrared sensor that points downward and another laser pointing upward that sort of is able to measure the up and down movement. As opposed to normal air movement, which is horizontal across the surface of the Earth, it's much easier for us to measure that. And it was basically able to build a 3D map that explained the particular gravity wave problem over the Antarctic because there aren't any mountains really close to the Antarctic. And some of their previous measurements had shown if you're looking at Antarctica straight on, so like you're looking at the South Pole, there is this ring of gravity waves all around the continent. And they really haven't up to this point been able to explain Why? Where are these waves coming from? You would expect that if they're coming off of mountains, they should slowly kind of die off as -hmm. they get farther from the mountain. So anyway, the South Track plane worked. It basically was able to measure specifically and follow waves coming off of the Andes Mountains hundreds of kilometers away. And they proved that that's what's happening over Antarctica, is these waves, they're getting magnified and accelerated by a thin stream of colder air That's moving faster and sort of traps them in at the top bound. So they're kind of bouncing off of that and it keeps the momentum going farther than it would. So on the one hand, it doesn't really help our model. It just says, oh, look, here's another way in which the gravity waves are even more complicated than we thought. And we really are not (laughs) going to be able to predict anything other than now we know how they're more complicated. It's a step it's a step towards truth which is kind of what science is all about right yeah the air is very complicated and uh, <laughs> they've just
2: proven that it's even
0: more complicated
2: yay science
0: that's right next link next, next link.
2: link uh this next link comes from the conversation and it seems to be pretty appropriate for what we're all dealing with hopefully a little bit more than usual it's called the dirty history of soap <laughs> It just kind of goes into like a very top level view of soap throughout the ages. And it identifies ancient Mesopotamia as the first to really produce a kind of soap by cooking fatty acids like fat rendered from cows or sheep or goats together with water and an alkaline like lye. And lye, if some of you guys know what it is, it's a caustic substance derived from wood ashes. And so what you have is a greasy and smelly goop that lifts away dirt. We also go into Roman times. Roman scholar Pliny the Elder had a book called Naturalis Historia, and he describes soap as a pomade made of tallow, usually from beef fat, and ashes that the Gauls, particularly men, would apply to their hair to, quote, give it a reddish tint. Huh. So, ancient oh. people basically used these early soaps to clean wool or cotton fibers before weaving them into cloth. So, it was really more to wash stuff rather than human hygiene even the Greeks and Romans who pioneered running water in public baths, they didn't use soap to clean their bodies. They would basically just immerse themselves in a water bath and then smear their bodies with scented olive oils using a scraper to remove any oil or grime.
0: Well, so it's still a fat though. Like if they're using olive oil, it's not a solid lathery thing, but it's still like... Yeah. I mean, oil
2: cleansing um, that I just understand anecdotally as a kind of face washing technique, it can kind of bind with and dissolve oils on the face and wash it away. But it's not a surfactant the way that soap itself is because soap usually is something that kind of lifts dirt by kind of magnetizing dirt to itself and then gets rinsed away. So it has some use for that, but not in the way that we're used to now or that got popularized for, for body cleansing. But- By the Middle Ages, there were these vegetable oil-based soaps that were being hailed for their mildness and their purity, and they actually smelled good, which was an innovation. (laughs) And they began coming into use as luxury items among Europe's aristocracies. But it wasn't really until the Civil War that washing bodies with soap as a regular practice really became into fashion. Like even before the Civil War, soap was really still just used for domestic cleaning. It was still made from cooking grease, wood ashes. But then when the Civil War came around, it was like, okay, this is something that is actually going to prevent disease and make you look better. And then once that really took off, that became a highly sought after product for people of all castes and classes. In 1879, P&G Procter & Gamble Hmm. introduced ivory soap, which is like the OG first perfumed, definitely still around today.
0: And their whole thing was it floats like that was how you knew it was pure was because it floated. Yeah, because floating is a sense of purity, as we all know
2: from the witch uh, (laughs) trials that we had, right? Exactly. (laughs) I think that was more of sort of like a convenience so you don't lose this precious product and like icky soap Just water. Right, your mark, nasty, but... dirty bath
0: water. You can <laughs> still find your Exactly.
2: Soap. So um, once there were World War One and Two shortages of fats and oils, we started developing synthetic detergents. And these were starting to get hailed as superior substitutes for fat-based laundry soaps or household cleaners and even shampoos. So give a little bit of thanks today for soap that actually smells good that you want to put on your body because it was really gross before, guys. Yeah,
0: I use kind of an old school soap, I have to admit. I have, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Dr. Bronner's soap.
2: Oh, yes.
0: going into the history of that guy. like That's worth a whole article on its own. Are you familiar with it, Wei? Have you ever seen it? No, I'm not. It's got like this cultish religious screed all over the bottle. Like the bottle is covered with text. It's kind of like the rantings of a madman. Like it's the kind of thing you would see on a cardboard sign of a dude in the center of a park screaming at you. That, but wow. but he's not
2: screaming about no. the end of times. He's screaming about all for one and one for all and unity and love and life. Yeah. And it's a very like hippie scream. It is.
0: And it's it's insane to me that it, it's evidence to me that the soap is so good because for any product like that to survive in the market, like I know other people who use it and they're like, yeah, <laughs> I just pretend I don't see the label like it just you know just don't look at the bottle try the soap and that's what someone told me they're like look I know it looks crazy like it's not gonna poison you just give it a shot and I was like oh this is actually really nice soap it smells good it gets the job done it's not Mm -hmm. it doesn't have all these extra chemicals in it and stuff and they're mm-hmm. like, yeah, so just don't look at the label and you're fine. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and it's also one of the soaps today that are actually advertised and recommended if you do read the screed right. um, <laughs> that you should use it not only on your body, but also to clean the house, which is kind of the original attention of soap from its historical
0: Heracles. That's right. You don't need something hmm. different for your sink and for your elbow. Just use the same thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, I had no idea that you could wash yourself with olive oil, and I would take any modern invention over that. At this right. Point.
2: right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next link.
1: Next, next link. link. So. In this article from the CBC, they're talking about the Tyrannosaurus Rex being actually built for distance, not for speed, that new research is showing. So, previous estimates put the speed of the T Rex at about 43 miles an hour, and they've adjusted that down to about 12 miles per hour, which is still really fast. Like, you can't outrun a T Rex regardless. Mm-hmm. So, They're actually talking about referencing some cool new papers that have come out that talk about using mammals as a recalibration strategy for understanding how T-Rexes would move because apparently they have pretty similar structures or at least the system that they use to estimate mammal speed can also be used for T-Rexes.
0: So I guess it doesn't it doesn't yeah. make any sense to compare them to birds because we don't know a lot about how fast birds can run. I mean, like we have emus and ostriches. I don't know anything about it. I'm clearly not a scientist, but it feels to me like they would be better compared to birds rather than mammals.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think in the case of the T-Rex, just because it was so huge, it was much more along the lines of how mammals would mm-hmm. run, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't have those skinny
0: little legs. It's... That's true. The little stick legs.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The research essentially summarizes that for theropod dinosaurs weighing over one ton, yep. uh, top running speed is probably limited by body size. So longer legs would be more likely to actually correlate with low energy walking hmm. while the predators proud for prey. And there's actually some evidence that if they hunted it this way, it's more likely that they hunted in packs as well. Whoa. So you can imagine, like a pack of T-Rexes? I don't know how many. <laughs> Yeah, a pack of T-Rexes just clipping along at twice your average running speed and doing that for a really long time. They don't specify a certain amount of time, but it's no longer sprinting. It's more likely they would just run down and prowl and stop. They were cruising in
2: teenage clicks. (laughs) Yeah,
1: (laughs) exactly.
0: Just looking to cause trouble. uh, That's right. Yeah,
1: and that's about all they say here. They're just saying that they found some new models for how T-Rexes move based on other science, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that is neat.
0: I like you said, I don't I don't like the idea of something that is slowly coming after you, where like even if you can outrun it for a little bit, it's going to exhaust you eventually. Like that to me is far more terrifying than something that jumps out and strikes, right? Like that inevitable yeah. dread of something just coming slowly towards you and there's nothing you can do about
1: it. So yeah. hordes
0: of zombies scarier than sniper vampires is what I'm hearing. Absolutely.
1: Wait, so does a sniper vampire like have a gun or is that just their behavior? <laughs> well,
2: it's more s- sniper in the sense that it's not like a shotgun approach of like, we'll just go after like a school of fish. It's more like I have chosen my prey and I will hunt and I will stalk and you're singularly, you know, looking at this as opposed to like a group of nameless T-Rex or zombies. I'm just getting a better feel for Jennifer's thriller horror column, Personal nightmare. That's, much- that's good. I'm sure that, exactly.
0: that information will not be used against me in any way, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today. Snakes have friends too. Why humans oh. totally freak out when they get lost. And astronomers huh. find a record-breaking star that's nearly as old as the universe. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. The articles we talked about today can also be found there if you'd like to get a little more information that wasn't completely elucidated by our commentary. I don't know how that would happen. But (laughs) if you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. Until next week, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: And I'm Waysper Chen.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.